Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, June 4th, and this is the weekly market update. A disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a registered investment advisor. I'm not authorized to give you investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so this is actually being recorded after the market closed on Friday, and we see that oil now is at $120 a barrel. We have gasoline, at least here in Texas, where I'm at, around $4.30, $4.40 a gallon, diesel over five. We've all seen the pictures from California, some other places where gasoline, six, seven, $8 a gallon, different places. And I'm shocked that right now, you know, some of the things that we're seeing out of our so-called leaders to solve the problem are not solutions at all. I mean, what I encourage people to do is go back in time or do some research on during the Carter administration, because this is kind of reminding me of the Carter administration, except for worse, as far as the responses during the last time we had uh, like an energy crisis. And a lot of the stupid things that are being proposed were proposed back then, and even dumber things now. I mean, this slide right here is a perfect example. Um, there's a bottleneck for fuels. Why? Because there's reduced global fuel making capacity. That means less refineries. Right. And we talked about that last week in a slide where I showed that um, the amount of refining capacity in the US is 5% lower than it was before the pandemic. So we've shut refineries, right? Because we don't need oil and gas. We don't need diesel. We don't need jet fuel because everything's going to be electric. And didn't you get the memo? And so the problem with shutting these refineries down is that with the bureaucracy, with the rules, with the amount of uh, ESG mandates and nonsense that's out there, do you really think you're going to build another refinery in the U.S.? And so what we have is instead politicians, especially on the uh, progressive side, the Democratic side, you know, coming up with price gouging allegations, um, passing legislation for windfall profit taxes, um, doing things to completely strangle the amount of new supply to come online. Like I said before, I could come up with a bunch of ideas to fix this problem, but they would never, the, it's like one person said before, the things that need to be done to fix these problems are not politically possible. And the things that are politically possible are not going to fix the problems. And so this is why even with the economy now definitely slowing down, uh, like I said, I want to get into too much in the macro, but it's obvious, right? Because the more money that consumers have to pay for food and fuel, which are basically in, a, in, a, in, a, in elastic costs, you have to eat. You can do some substitutions here and there. You can downgrade your diet, less meats and eat more beans and rice and things like that. But you do have to eat. And for the most part, at least until you do get laid off or fired, uh, you have to go to your job, okay? And you have to go 
you know, drive to the grocery store, you have to transport goods. So the prices have to be paid for these, regardless if people like it or not. And so we have these problems that have been created over many decades because we don't really have an energy policy in this country. We don't have realism. We don't have an understanding of physics. We don't have anything. We just have this election cycle that shifts the pendulum back and forth with no real, you know, sitting down and looking at what you really want to achieve. You know, we've got the cart well in front of the horse on this energy transition. And so this is what you're going to, this is what you're going to see. And so um, the policies that created this problem that are now manifesting were put in place, you know, years ago, and they're not going to be fixed with, you know, passing laws or printing more money. And so I think we're going to be stuck with these energy prices for a while. Now, I don't know how high they're going to go. Eventually, they will go to a sufficient level, I think, if the supply doesn't increase to cause demand destruction. But I don't know what level that is. Is that $120 a barrel? Is that $150 a barrel? Is that $200 a barrel? Is that three? I don't know. Because right now, what we're seeing, uh, I'm going to give you some anecdotal evidence here and just some real-time stuff to some company corporations that are talking about this, but I can't see how the normal average American or person with gasoline where it's at, where diesels where it's at, where food prices are up, that they're going to have much discretionary income to go spend on other things. So uh, I think we are looking at a recession. I think we're looking at a big problem. And I don't think that, you know, the people in power know what to do. And they've exacerbated the situation now with, for, you know, we had the original um, self-made sh shot ourselves in the right foot by shutting the world economy down over the uh, coof. Whether you agree with that or not, that's what happened. Uh, and it discombobulated the global supply chain. And just as we were recovering from that, we shot ourselves in the left foot by um, not stepping in, not being statesmen, not trying to derail this war in Ukraine, and then piling on sanctions on one of the major commodity producers in the world. And so that's further exacerbated. That's thrown gasoline on an already raging fire, i.e. the global supply chain. And so, you know, you're getting a situation now where um, I'm reading, you know, some different people that I respect. And, you know, the thing that, you know, the, if you recall, this was all going to be transitory. Don't worry, it's going to be the inflation. But now it's the worry is it's becoming embedded. And once you create an embedded inflation mindset, it's very difficult to break that. And so the idea, I think that, you know, which I disagree with, that, you know, well, you know, the Federal Reserve chairman was up at talking to the president and they had, you know, who knows what they were really talking about, but this is an election year, right? And so, you know, I guess the idea is, you know, how you deal with this is you would immediately curtail and increase the amount of quantitative tightening, which would withdraw liquidity from the system. You would come out like on Monday morning and raise the Fed funds rate, you know, 1%, 2%, three, whatever you have to do and shock the system and cause, but that's going to cause a massive recession, possibly even a depression because you have over leveraged companies, the government's over leveraged, the debt's too big, and you're going into an election year. So knowing the history of politics, not just in this country, but just how politicians react, do you actually think that that's what the policy is going to be? 
I think there's just going to be these incremental increases and then try and with the Federal Reserve looking for any reason to pause or any reason to say, yep, inflation's under control now and we can pause the rate increases and whatever they need to do. Because what happens is, is typically what happens is they just keep doing these policies, tightening liquidity until that something breaks in the system. And I have no idea what that's going to be. Housing, emerging markets, uh, who knows what maybe even the government itself, because it has a lot of debt to roll over. You have $30 trillion in debt, and it's constantly having to be portions of it rolled over. And so if the government's not in the market, buy, if the Fed's not in the market buying these securities like they were, then who's going to buy them? I mean, if there's 8% inflation, would you go buy a 10-year treasury bond at 3%? That's crazy. You're, you're already locking in a 5% loss. And then if rates continue up, then you have capital gains losses or capital losses, sorry. So the value of your bond goes down with the increase in rates. So I don't know what they're going to do. I don't see a Paul Volcker on the horizon. And we see now this food and fuel inflation is embedded in the economy. Um, and I don't know what they think they're going to do. And uh, like I said, I don't know how people are going to survive. Uh, they're already talking about rebates, stimmies for people uh, for gas, that just makes the problem worse. But this is what politicians do, right? They, I've talked about this many times and people just can't get it through their head. They create these problems, okay? And then once they create a problem, you get an unintended consequence and then they create another dumb program or decision or law or regulation to deal with that problem, which creates more unintended consequences and it just keeps never ending and it just turns into a big mess. And so this is a perfect example. There's just not enough refining capacity in the world. And um, well, at least, especially in the United States, this is just in the United States, you can see the number of refineries has been in constant decline, right? From various regulations or periods of low margin. So people shut the refinery down. It's old. They don't want to spend the capital to, um, you know, raise, raise the efficiency or do the repairs. Believe me, I've worked in a refinery. It's nonstop maintenance. It's a lot of money is spent. A lot of people have to work on keeping the thing running and you have to have these turnarounds. And it's, you know, if you're not making any money or if the regulations are so stiff or the taxes are so high or whatever, then when you're in a protracted downturn where refining margins are not that high, which typically they're not that high. I mean, right now they're huge right now because there's un the demand is just overwhelming the ability of these refineries to to um, make fuel, then, you know, there was no, you just shut it down. You're not going to spend billions of dollars when there's no prospect for a return. And so nobody foresaw that because what do we need refineries for? Because everything's going to be electric, John. Didn't you get the memo? So here you are. So we're, what are you going to do with the electric cars? Where, where, is that, where, when are you going to electrify everything? Who's going to spend all this money to electrify everything? You know, no one's thought any of this through. And in the meantime, you have this administration telling people they can't open mines in this country. So where are you going to get the material? We're going to get the copper. Where are you going to get the nickel? Where are you going to get the aluminum? Where are you going to get all of these materials to do this transition? So this hasn't been well thought out. We've talked about this ad nauseum well before, predicted all this was going to happen. If you've been following this channel, you can, you can note that we, you know, not get it dead nuts where we thought, you know, every single thing was going to happen, but we had a general sense that 
this is where this is where we're going to end up. Years of underinvestment, coupled with stupid ESG mandates and dumb politicians making dumb policies, along with this zeitgeist for this you know energy transition of trying to do it in one you know four year election cycle. This is where we ended up. This is exactly what we said would happen. And so I don't know how high the prices go. I do know that there is a price. It can't go up forever. You know, and God forbid if we have a hurricane, a couple of hurricanes in the Gulf this, this um, uh, hurricane season, which has started now, by the way, you had the first one already in the Gulf, I think, heading to Florida. So you get a decent sized hurricane come up and hit the Gulf Coast and knock out the refineries there for even any period of time or force shutdowns of ga natural gas and oil in the Gulf. I mean, you're going to have soaring prices. There's a real risk here. And this is, you know, this is what usually happens, right? This is the kind of foobar stuff that happens at, you know, Murphy's Law that's not anticipated, that just helps throw more gasoline on the fire. Excuse the pun. So this is a problem. And, you know, you're not going to build any more refineries in the U.S. So this is why you see like Saudi Aramco building refineries. Um, places like India and China are building more refineries. And so we're outsourced again. Uh, value add. We take our crude. You know, if, if I was king for that, what I would do? I would I would go to like Brownsville or Corpus Christi or Houston and talk with these people. And if I was the federal government, get with the state and say, look, we want to create an economic zone uh, and call it whatever you want, empowerment zone, uh, where we want a you know five hundred thousand barrel a day refinery to be built, and it's going to take crude from the U.S. Uh, from wherever, from these pipelines and, you know, from Canada, Canadian crude, whatever. And we're going to have, you know, we're going to have state-of-the-art equipment. We're going to partner with you and we're going to lower the tax burden, the regulatory burden and create a zone around there. I mean, if you told some of these companies, you don't have to pay any federal or state taxes uh, for 10 or 15 years, something like that, they would, they would be fighting each other to put a, a new refinery up. But see, then what would happen is the environmental groups, like I said before, would go find some progressive judge in California or New Jersey or Hawaii uh, to stop you from doing that. And so, you know, this is what the progressives want. This is what a lot of people in this country want. They want higher prices because they think that it will choke off demand. They don't understand that we're nowhere near having this transition. And in the meantime, as I've stated before, you don't have the materials. You don't have the capacity in the, in, the, in the economic system of the US to facilitate this massive transition, okay? And so this is a big problem. And I think, you know, these things cure themselves. I think high prices cure high prices. Uh, eventually prices will go high enough to choke off demand, but a lot of people are gonna get hurt in the meantime. And it didn't have to be this way. This is my point. We don't, we're not a serious country with serious people. We're emotional. We don't think things through. And, you know, it's red team, blue team. And can I score a touchdown on you? Or can I dunk on you? So this is going to be helpful. This is a tweet here uh, from an article in the Wall Street Journal. But basically, Luke Oil's uh, Fidan, which is the CEO of Luke Oil, questions whether Russia needs to keep oil output at 10 million barrels a day amid current sanctions says production of seven to eight million barrels a day might make more sense for domestic consumption and exports and wouldn't result in losses to the state budget. 
So this is exactly right, because right now, as I've pointed out before, Russia is experiencing tremendous windfall from the higher energy prices, okay, which have been in a large part, not fully, but in large part because of the sanctions that are put on it, that you have people saying they're not going to buy Russian crude and natural gas. Okay, but they don't have a choice because to have a modern society requires a certain amount of quadrillion BTUs inputs. And if you lower the energy input into economy that requires X, but you only put Y into it, you're not going to have the same economic output or productivity or wealth creation. It's just that simple, whether you like it or not, that's how it is. And so, you know, there's this discussion going on whether or not the Russians can expand their crude production. There's been talk about that for a couple of years. Uh, now they're saying, you know, people have said, well, what's going to happen? Soros said the other day, I didn't listen to the thing. I refuse. Somebody put it on the Discord channel, the speech he gave. Well, Russian crude's backing out. They're going to be forced to, you know, um, shut off a bunch of their wells and fields, and it could possibly cause damage to the fields, and they'll never regain the levels of production they had before. Why is that a good thing for the world? When oil is the mechanism for modern civilization and life. So be careful what you wish for, uh, because you just might get it. And I don't think it's going to affect the Russians at all. It's just going to affect other people that were receiving those exports. And remember, oil is fungible. It's a, it's a worldwide market. Um, so if one person doesn't want your oil, somebody else will. And so this was an article from 2021. I'll put the, um, in the Moscow Times, I'll put the article link to it in the show notes where I can and where I've got articles that I've gotten information from. I'll link to them in the show notes. You can review at your leisure if you choose. And so Russian oil supply might never recover. Russian oil production might never recover to pre-coronavirus levels the country's energy minister has forecast, according to Commerce Business Paper. In a strategy document outlining prospects for Russia's critical oil and gas industry, the government said its, quote, base case or most likely scenario is that Russian oil production will never again hit the record levels recorded in 2019. And so we're seeing this all around the world. We're seeing country after country saying that it's, we might be, have peaked out on their production. So where does the new production come from? Or, you know, the demand in the world is 100 million barrels a day, and yet you have more than half the world's population in emerging markets who have economic development go are going on at a massive rate that require these oil and gas inputs. So um, this is why I'm bullish on energy uh, overall. You're gonna need every single kilowatt, every single BTU, every single molecule of energy, uh, hydrocarbon energy, nuclear energy, renewable energy to try to meet these needs. And going around and artificially, uh, by government fiat, whether that's ESG mandates or stupid sanctions, is not going to be beneficial to the world at, at large. And the people in the world that have access to reliable and fairly uh, cheap energy are going to be the places that excel going forward. And if you don't have access to cheap energy... If you are throttling energy inputs into your economy, like the EU is doing, then you can expect to become poor. It's just that simple. And no amount of solar panels on the Baltic shore is going to change that.
So here is the CEO of Chevron. Um, here's a quote from him. No sign of demand destruction yet. Uh, can't pump more can't pump more oily so about today's activity was determined two years ago so this is basically the curve right of oil so right now you have you know the oil price if spot is like 120 as you go further out on the curve for futures market 2024 26 you're seeing that this um you know this is what the oil executives look like and they look at and they say okay well yeah the oil price is 120 dollars a barrel but you, you know, in order to bring this project on in the Gulf of Mexico, which won't come online until 2026 or 2028, the forward curve is only showing at $65 a barrel. Does the project make sense for us to put billions of dollars into a project that right now it's showing us that we're only at $65 a barrel and that's in 2000, you know, that's in current dollars. So what does that mean going forward, you know, six years or five years or whatever? And so this is what people look at. So what we need to see is we need to see this whole curve shift upwards, okay? We need this futures curve to shift upwards as the market understands that this, we're, we don't have enough oil and that, that there's been insufficient investment. And I believe that will happen over time. I believe that that mindset will take over. It's going, it takes time to change a mindset. It takes time for sea changes to happen in uh, perceptions and narratives. But I believe that will happen. But this is another reason why uh, there's no there's no uh, impetus, there's no urgency in going out and spending billions of dollars to to uh, bring new new supply online. Just because you know people look at this and say, well, you know, the market's telling us that there's going to be plenty of oil in these outer years, and maybe that maybe this is correct. I don't think it is correct. I think that the market's got this wrong. But uh, what do I, you know, I'm, you know, I may be wrong. They may be right. We'll have to see. That's what makes a market. So here's Josh Young. This is, you know, we've got, uh, well, actually, this was as of today at noon, but we actually finished at $120 a barrel. He's, you know, Baker Hughes comes out with their rig report today and says U.S. oil and gas rig count flat this week. Oil rigs unchanged, 574 rigs, natural gas rigs unchanged, total rigs unchanged. So this is week to week. So nothing's happening. I mean, as far as you'd expect this massive rush back into the um, oil fields at $120 a barrel, and we've pointed this out ad nauseum, we're not seeing it. Yes, we're seeing growth. We're seeing growth in Canada. We're seeing private operators bring rigs back. Um, we're seeing a lot of activity offshore in several basins, and that's coming back. But we're not seeing you know, this big rush back in specifically because what, what I've talked about, you know, we saw even Nancy Pelosi took after the oil companies, you know, those darn oil companies, they're giving all their, instead of reinvesting in more production, they're giving the money back to the owners of the company, the shareholders. And so, but I've, I've pointed this out before, if you're, you know, if you're an oil company executive, you're not going to be induced to invest in this type of weirdo schizophrenic uh, political climate where you're demonized by one group of politicians on Monday and on a Wednesday, the same group of politicians that was demonizing you a week before or a couple of days before is now admonishing you to bring more production on. No one's going to, uh, you, you need stability in the regulatory and, and political climate. We don't have that. And so I've saw this, uh, you know, American uh, demand is not pulling back yet. American Airlines raises Q2, Outlook on continued demand strength. 
American Airlines updates second quarter guidance, sees second quarter revenue up 11 to 13% versus 2019. That's pre-pandemic. So we're up 11 to 13% pre-pandemic uh, uh, with American Airlines. A lot of that could be, uh, they were originally saying guiding to 6 to 8%. They see uh, the same thing. I think United said the same thing. They're, they're, they, they came out and said that they're seeing more traffic, more, more revenue. Some of this is from higher fares, I'm sure, but we are seeing, you know, like I said, I mean, anecdotally, everybody I talk to is going somewhere. This could be the last hurrah before we have this tremendous recession that I think we're going to have, you know, next year. Uh, because like I said, with the energy prices where they're at discretionary income and people are running up the credit cards, it's almost like they don't care. I'm going to go do this. We're going to have this trip. I've seen people say, well, you know, they bit the bullet on the airfares or the cost just because, uh, they wanted to, they haven't been anywhere in two years and they want to go do something. So we'll see, but, uh, I'm still holding to the fact that there's a possibility we could run up to $150 a barrel during this summer. So, and like I said, God forbid, if we have a hurricane or two in the Gulf, I mean, and knock out a couple of refineries or keep production, you know, we need every drop of oil, you know, the, 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 um, the energy agencies that do the reporting, there was like a 5 billion or 5 million barrel draw this week. And that, that there was like 4 million or something like that. It was something crazy. If you didn't have the SPR release, it would have been like an eight or 10 million barrel draw on inventories. There's not enough oil. It's not enough oil being produced for the demand. That's why the price is going to go up and continues to go up. And it's just going to continue going up until demand is affected. So talking about the, I should have put this right out of the refinery thing, but um, Clarkson Securities, they do a lot of uh, shipping uh, type of, I didn't get my hands on this, uh, on this um, report, but I wish I would have. But uh, clean tanker owners can expect a surge in oil product flows. The fundamentals for product tankers appear to be very strong. Of course, because if there's not enough refining capacity in the U.S. and you need jet fuel and diesel, it's going to be refined in India, China, wherever, Singapore or Saudi, wherever they have refining capacity, if there is even there. And it's going to be brought using clean tankers, product tankers to where it needs. We don't have enough product supply in Europe, in the US. So it's going to be brought from other places. So that's longer voyages, more ton miles. It's, uh, it makes perfect sense. So we'll have to see if this continues or not, because you're not going, even if you started trying to build a refinery now, anywhere, even a place where you could build one, it's going to take you a couple few years. And so this is, this is a problem that's not going to be rectified uh, by passing a law or by lowering interest rates at the Federal Reserve. It's, it's, this is, these are fundamental uh, endemic issues that are going to take real policy changes and real courageous, informed politicians to solve. And I just don't see that right now. So oh, I misspelled this up here, um, but copper inventories at half of the 10 year. I don't know. I got this all messed up. Anyways, uh, this title disregard. Basically, you have copper inventories that are like extremely below the, av the average of what they typically are. And you can see down here. And so this is another problem, right? Copper, uh, I've just been shocked, you know, with supposedly the economy slowing down around the world. Um, copper still holding in above $4 a pound. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's, 
you know, there really must be tight supply and, and there is. Um, you can see this goes all the way back to 2012. Obviously there's fluctuation inventories, but look at how low we are on uh, inventories. So um, this, is, uh, this is another indication of just another, and it's not just in copper, it's in, in most, of your, most of your industrial metals. So here's an article I'll put a link to, I think it was a, uh, from Australia, but it was talking about uh, what Goldman Sachs says. It says, Goldman Sachs metal strategist Nick Snowden has doubled down on his comments that copper is the new oil, saying predictions of a supply crunch in copper could send the red metal to $15,000 a ton, could prove conservative. Copper demand is expected to skyrocket over the next decade as growing demand for renewable energy, electric, electricity infrastructure, and electric vehicles increases alongside global carbon reduction targets. But the cupboard is relatively bare when it comes to new supply, with extremely low supplies of metal held in commodity exchange warehouses exacerbating the issue. Just, just showed you that. So he goes on to say, he says, so when we say $15,000 a ton, what we're saying there is copper is going to have to go to a price level well beyond any level we've seen before historically to achieve that demand destruction. Not only demand destruction, but to force or coerce or incentivize uh, miners to go out and find more copper. And the copper is going to be higher cost copper. You know, all of the easy, all the $1, $2 and $3 copper has been found. And so now you have to get into places that are harder to extract, cost more money. And so your, your, your base level uh, for the commodity is going to be higher than it was in the past. And, uh, you know, I remember, I think Goring and Rosenzweig wrote a paper about this a couple few years ago, and they suggested that um, just to get into a per pound price, you know, copper about 430, 440 a pound right now, they were suggesting by the end of this decade, they would, that copper would see a price of like 15 to $20 a pound. And, uh, this is what they were even saying here in this article that, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand dollars a ton. So, you know, we've seen it in lithium, right? Lithium's been up like five, five times in the last year or something, something like this. And so, you know, we're going to have to have a higher price to ration the available supply and uh, incentivize people to go out and find more copper. So uh, I've been actually shocked how well the copper price has held up. But now, you know, we have China coming out of the zero COVID lockdowns as of June 1st, and they have announced like, a plethora, a, just a bunch of um, new stimulus measures to boost their economy. Uh, they have some type of big political event coming up in October of this year. And in order to meet their goals, they're going to do, they're going to stimmy up everything. And I don't have time to get in, excuse me. I don't have the ability to get into all of the, the things, but this article, if you go into it, you can look at all the measures that they are taking. And so just briefly, the Chinese government has released a new policy package containing three, 33 China stimulus measures in another effort to boost the economy in the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns. The stimulus measures expand upon support measures for companies impacted by the pandemic and seek to shore up investment and ensure the supply of basic resources. 
The policy package comes just days after the city of Shanghai issued a set of 50 policy measures to boost economic activity in the wake of recent COVID lockdown. It also coincides with the reopening of Shanghai on June 1st and the gradual resumption of normal life in Beijing since May 29th. And so what you need to understand is right now, like the purchasing managers index, I think is uh, still below, slightly below 50. It's like 49, 48, something like that in China, I think in the May report, which is actually up from 47. So that, that, that is an indication of contraction. Anything below 50 in a PMI uh, indicates contraction in an economy. And so with these stimulus measures, you know, China is the major user of copper and most other industrial metals. And so if they're going to ramp up this economy, if they're going to stimmy up that economy, then uh, will it be enough? Will it overcome the slowdown in Europe and the US and other places? So, and you still have places like India and Indonesia, you know, Indonesia gets ignored. It's like 330 million people and it's growing at five you know, they need to grow at 7% a year just to absorb all the new workers coming into the workforce. And they're growing about 5% a year. And then, of course, India is, you know, uh, where China was 20 years ago. So there's going to be tremendous pressure on copper demand as this electrification, um, urbanization, industrialization continues in these emerging markets. And then couple that with this uh, push to electrify uh, the, the world. So we'll see, but uh, uh, we'll see what does the copper price. So um, like I said, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of things that you need to take into consideration. So, um, but when the Chinese if want to make their economy uh, ramp up, they have shown in the past that they are willing and able to give it enough stimulus to do that. So we'll see what, what it looks like going forward. So this is uh, something I find interesting, you know, the European Union, uh, I don't know what to say, but Germany, one of the major powers in Europe, one of the, the industri industrial colossus, if you will. And here's what you have. This white line is the ECB uh, central bank rate, which is zero, which it's been for, you know, I don't know, almost 10 years now. And here you see the inflation that has just skyrocketing in Germany. And uh, it's at like 40 year highs now. So um, I see no indication that the ECB is gonna raise rates or cut back on its uh, quantitative easing. And I don't know what they're gonna do. I mean, they're, they're, they're virtue signaling their way right into a massive recession uh, slash depression. And I suspect, uh, we're going to see, we're going to begin seeing, uh, summer's coming. We're going to begin seeing, uh, I think, pushback in the streets, especially like in France. Uh, every year is, is protest season in the summer. But uh, a lot of people, Europeans will write me and tell me, you don't know what you're talking about, John. We haven't seen anything. Uh, if you think that this is going just going to continue forever, uh, you're, you're wrong. It's not. Uh, unless people are so gelded and emasculated there and so beat down that they are willing to endure, you know, 20, 30, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% decreases in their standard of living permanently. I don't see it without doing anything about it. I just don't see it. So, you know, that might be, you know, the particular person 
that's writing me, but some people are just telling me, I don't know what I'm talking about. Everything's fine here. It's not a problem. Okay, well, we'll see. I'm not there. Uh, I can only go on what I've seen here. This is, you know, not good. The, the ECB uh, has, uh, Madame Lagarde has indicated that there's not going to be a change in rates or QE. So, uh, well, maybe there will be in the Q3 or Q4, but, you know, they're using this whole, they, they're in the same boat. They have all of these just tremendous amount of debt. And what are they going to do? Raise rates? How? There might be some token raise at some point by a quarter point or something, but that's not going to do anything to this, you know, and then you go off and basically um, shoot yourself in the foot with your energy inputs. Um, and then just think that, you know, like the people in Germany, uh, Harbeck and these people, they just think they're going to just build more windmills and solar panels. And that will solve the problem. Uh, I got news for them. That's not going to work. So we've talked about this enough about uh, Germany and the energy transition. It's a disaster, in my opinion. But people in, you know, people in their, it's their country. If that's what they want, then, you know, they're going to get it good and hard. And so this is what the, evidently the administration here in the U.S. is considering. So, and I have a link so you can read the whole, whole thing if you want. Uh, it says, uh, calls on the White House to convene an emergency inflation task force in which the government would buy price dips in global commodities and resell them at a discount to the American public. So you have a, sh this is exactly what some other people have said was going to happen. Um, you've already seen the stimuluses being sent out or the uh, payments to people to compensate them or to help them with higher gas prices. It's the last thing you want to do. You don't want to create more artificial demand. You want demand destruction. Okay. You don't want to create, there's already shortages of all this stuff. And so you're, when you start subsidizing it, people don't have an incentive then to uh, cut down on consumption. If somebody's, you know, subsidizing their behavior. So the idea that what some task force of bureaucrats is now going to start buying commodities on price dips, these guys are going to be like these super duper traders in there buying price dips and then selling the commodities to users and users, I guess, in the US at a discount. That's dumb. That's not going to work. I hope this is just like some op-ed where somebody's just, you know, suggesting this, but it never happens. This is the kind of dumb policies that don't work. You know, what you should be doing is looking to approve new mines, uh, new supply, things like that. But that's anthema to the progressive agenda, which is basically an environmentalist um, uh, religion. And, you know, we don't want fossil fuels. We don't want energy. We want green energy. We want more windmills and solar farms but we don't want to build any mines for the inputs to build those uh, machines. So they don't know what they want. This is what I'm saying. These are some very confused people uh, that don't really know what they're doing. And, uh, but you don't have to know what you want to, which you don't have to know anything in, in the land of make-believe. In the land of make-believe, things just happen because they're good and nice. And, you know, it's unicorn farts and, you know, all the way. That's, you know, we'll just power everything on unicorn farts. And uh, it's just magical. John, don't you understand? Uh, no, I don't, because I live in the world of math, engineering, and physics, and it doesn't work that way. 
And so it goes on here to say, to meet the moment, Mr. Biden should convene an emergency task force. Now, who's going to be on this task force? Can you imagine? Empowered to lower prices and address shortages. We need an all-out mobilization, not just a few ad hoc initiatives reacting to headlines. The task force should include relevant cabinet members like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vislack, and Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg, and Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. Everybody is just mentioned there is a hack. I just showed you where I quoted Yellen saying she didn't know what she was doing. She, she didn't think this was going to happen. Okay. Uh, Granholm's a hack, a Democratic long-term party hack. She doesn't know anything about energy. She's never worked in the energy industry. She has no clue what she's talking about. The only person here is maybe Vilsack uh, knows a little bit because I think he was the governor of Iowa. So he's been around some corn farmers. So he might know a little bit. Buttigieg, this is the guy that was, you know, off with his fake breastfeeding thing during the whole uh, logistics crisis. He was, you know, MIA. And so this is the blue ribbon panel we're going to convene that's going to move the levers, push the buttons, and turn the dials in the right sequence and fix all this. Um, count me as skeptical. And so here we go. Uh, well, I just mentioned this. So here's, you know, I say this up here. These people don't know what they are doing. So here's Janet Yellen. She got interviewed the other day by, uh, on CNN with Wolf Blitzer. And this is her quote. Quote, I was wrong about the path of inflation would take. Yeah, she was the one out there saying transitory. You know, she doesn't know what she's doing. She was a failure when she was the uh, Fed chairman. And she's a failure at this. I don't care how many credentials she has. This is the problem. These people live in a bubble world. They don't do their own shopping. They don't change their own oil. They don't, you know, they don't do anything. They're in a bubble talking to each other. They all went to the same schools. They're all part of the same social circle. And they don't know what everybody else is experiencing. They don't make their own sandwiches. They don't do anything. They just sit around and talk and think. Okay. And they're not in the real world. This is the problem. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard on Wednesday piled on, quote, I think we're on the precipice of losing control of inflation expectations. You think? And of course, you know, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, who does have private sector experience and knows better. But he's, you know, you don't get in these positions to be a maverick like Volcker was, okay? You get in these positions because you're a hack and you'll do what you're told to do. You know, this guy's got hundreds of millions of dollars. Why, why does he need to be fed sharing? Because they're egos, right? They want to be part of that. And now you got this tremendous mess. It's fine when nothing's going wrong. Everything's fine. You just sit there. Who cares? Now this thing's out of control. They don't know what to do. And what's he say? Uh, he said this week that inflation is not the Fed's fault. Okay, well, it's not entirely the Fed's fault, but it was exacerbated by the Fed. You know, this is from uh, Steve Blumenthal's weekly uh, uh, output, which I suggest you uh, uh, subscribe to because it's tremendous uh, weekly uh, economics reviews. But anyways, uh, he said in, in there, one can try to duck under the cover of COVID and supply chain issues, but printing 50% of all dollars ever created in just the last two years is the big elephant in the room. Too much money chasing too few goods. That's the exact problem. You have to pull the liquidity out of the system. And if you do, you're going to collapse the system. And so they are between the proverbial rock and a hard place. And they don't know what to do. 
and they're hoping they can just fine tune it and get a soft landing. I don't think it's going to happen. And I don't think they're, they're going to mess around here and try to, you know, they're way behind the curve. And what's going to get him is energy prices are just going to be like a meteor slamming into the economy. It's just going to be a total extinction event. When oil prices continue to go up, they're going to hit some threshold. I don't know what it is. It's just going to turn the economy off. It's just that simple. And so this is another reason why you can't raise rates where they need to go, right? 70% of NASDAQ companies are zombie companies. Uh, imagine your interest expense being higher than your operating profit. Such companies currently comprise roughly 70% of the NASDAQ. 70% of the NASDAQ doesn't make enough money in cash flow to pay their interest expense. And so if you raise interest rates, this is what I talked about before. One of the, a lot of the things that I follow is the financial stress. What I follow is junk bond yield spreads. This stuff is all climbing. Financial stress is climbing. The spreads between... Uh, the treasury yield and junk bond yields is expanding. Why? Because people are selling off junk bonds because they know that these companies are, are going to get, you know, are going to get broken at some point. And we're seeing that. Uh, this is one of the, you know, so it's coming folks. Uh, and if they, this is another reason why they don't want to raise rates, but the market's taking rates up for them, whether they like it or not. I mean, look at what mortgage rates have done. They're like, five and a half percent uh the 10 years like well it was over three percent but it's pulled back recently but if this uh continues it's it's with this inflation it's gonna the, the rates are going to continue higher and at some point the fed's just going to have to 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 bite the bullet but they can't and then you you know that they're going to have to uh this qt just started this week so quantitative tightening so the, it's like, you know, opening the drain on a bathtub. So I found this uh, amusing. Um, social ESG funds have biggest outflow ever. So, you know, that was going to be the big thing, right? Do the right thing. Well, how did they say it? Um, do the right thing and profit by doing the right thing. Well, what we find is, is that, you know, um, a lot of these ESG funds equity funds were stuffed with stuff like Apple and a lot of tech companies. They weren't necessarily ESG. They were just basically S&P tech funds. And so they're not performing. And so now we've seen this largest monthly outflow uh, in May. As a matter of fact, the SEC is going after a lot of these funds because they're not really ESG funds. They're just basically uh, marketed that way, but they're just full of a lot of these tech stocks. And so, you know, it doesn't help when you have like Tesla in there and a lot of these things and with these big market caps. And now these market caps are coming in. I mean, Elon Musk was out there talking about all this demand and high growth, but yet they're talking about laying off 10% of the workforce. If you have all this growth and all this demand for your vehicles, why are you talking about laying people off? Because the super dreadnought manufacturing process has become so efficient? I don't think so. So um, yeah, this is something to watch. Maybe this is a one, you know, an anomaly, but I think that people... You know, this is what happens in these bear markets. We are going to study what happened. I remember it vividly. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, the, the regular stocks were having a hard time, but a lot of the energy stocks and natural resource stocks did very well during this time frame because, you know, we're in an inflationary environment, an environment of undersupply, and the world's just not going to end, Okay. Um, I think there'll be a, like I've said before, tremendous volatility in commodities, but I think 
we are in this 10-year period where we're going to see the regular stock market come down, but yet um, resource stocks do tremendously well with periods of tremendous pullbacks and yet more opportunity to the upside where we end up after the 10 years at a higher level, but with tremendous amount of volatility in between. I've said that before. So prepare yourself if you want to be in this market, if you want to participate in resource stocks, I think you will do well, but you need to understand that there will be volatility. And when I say volatility, swings of 50%, you know, where things fall, drop back 50% or more, and then rally again and make new highs. That's what I'm talking about. And if you cannot deal with that, if you cannot uh, understand that, if you cannot stomach it, then you cannot play there. And uh, that's, that's just my, uh, that's my view. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate it. You know, um, if you please help the channel, like, subscribe, comment. Um, if you, I, I think that, you know, we had a kind of a pullback, but I was looking at the portfolio. It's really recovered nicely. We're really right now beating the S&P fairly handily uh, this quarter. And uh, hopefully that will continue. Of course, past perform we've, we've already been thrashing it the last two years. Past performance is no guarantee of, of future performance, but I think that we have got the, the right trend. You know, sell tech, buy resources, sell the, the regular stock market and buy resources uh, and resource producers. And I think that, uh, I think we have the right uh, formula there. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, take a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence New Alert newsletter, 150 bucks a year. And uh, we can introduce you to companies and ways that we uh, try to take advantage of that. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Thanks for your uh, stopping by. And we look forward to seeing you in the comments. And we'll talk to you next week.